So we're continuing on. Now we are saying that he will give them a white stone. Who? The overcomer. One thought is, in certain games, the winner in the Roman Empire was given a white stone that entitled them to free items at the city's expense. So maybe if it's so, the white stone reveals the overcomer is entitled to what the Lord inherits in heaven. That's what we're entitled to. Everything as a whole that he gets, we get the blessings. We inherit many things in heaven. Each stone has the overcomer's new name on it that only he and the Lord knows. So much for the Christian knowing everything when he gets to heaven. You will not know your fellow Christian's secret name. Only God and him. This speaks of intimacy. That's between him and the Lord. Nobody else. Isn't that interesting? Nobody will ever know what it is. Okay? And so he says it speaks of a special intimacy, and maybe the name explains the overcomer's rewards and achievements and his standing in heaven. We're not told what the name means. But God does not give names because they sound good. We name children sometimes because we like the name. Every name has a meaning, and they found out what the meaning was. So the Lord gives them something unique for themselves. I don't know if he gives the name to others, and there might be millions that have the same name, but you won't know. See, if you're close in rewards, maybe you're giving us some. I don't know, but we just know it's going to be between us and the Lord. Remember once the Lord said, I go to prepare a place for you. An abiding place is called. It's not a mansion. That's often the prosperity false assumption. I've had those in that doctor tell me they will have huge mansions and angels will be their servants. And I thought, you pompous person, you won't even make it to the kingdom. Angels have better things to do than being the servants. They serve us by serving Christ. The ministering spirits, I said, are they not all ministering spirits to the Christian? Some teach usually ultra-Calvinism, that will be higher than angels. There's no scripture that says this. Jesus said you will be likened angels if you make it into the kingdom. They'll be rank and file. We might be higher than some angels and lower than others. I doubt whether very few are going to be higher than Michael and the chief archangels. Maybe Paul or Job. See, God will evaluate all of this, okay? So a special name between himself and the one who overcomes to the end. He overcomes the flesh, the world, and demonic powers. That's what it overcoming means. He passes this, and people, oh, they don't like this, especially Calvinistic people. I've disputed them over it. They don't like, well, if I'm not eternally saved and not once saved, you say that I'm on probation. You are on probation. You have to prove faithful to the testing time of your life. Call it probation. Call it testing. Everybody goes through it. And if you don't pass these segments, you will not make it into the kingdom of God. Okay? You'll not make it into heaven. 
What do you think most of the New Testament and the gospel and the epistles are written? If you study it, so much of it, a good half or more, is warning the Christian not to go back to the world and the consequences of going back to the world. It refutes all of this nonsense of once saved, always saved, that works are not important. See? Well, surely Catholic works aren't, and ritual isn't, but spiritual works is. If you don't love your neighbor, if you don't help people, if you don't give, then you have bad works. If you don't do anything and bury the talents you have, Jesus, he said, the fathers will call you a wicked servant and take that from you. Even what you have will be taken from you. People that are not faithful to what they're given, they lose it. And all the scriptures overall tells us we are on probation. We are on testing period. And people don't want to believe that. See, because a false belief of once saved, always saved, or that they can license the sin all they want because the spirit can't see, then you can see how free they can become. It's a false peace. It's a lying peace. And they're going to be speechless at the day of the Lord. Then they're going to see the truth, and it's going to be nothing they can do about it. Okay? Proven. The purpose of probation is to prove a person's loyalty, that he can use the weapons that God has provided for the Christian and the graces of God. I've said it many times. It's very important. If you look at Second Corinthians, if you don't know many scriptures, you should learn this one. And you won't fall for a bunch of nonsense. Second Corinthians 12, 9. Paul wants to be released from his thorn in the flesh, the suffering and demonic things that came on him, because he was given so much revelation and the Lord would not remove it. And what does he tell him? He said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. If you don't get anything else, get this. Grace is ability. It's not a license. See? It's not passive. It's active. So it's made perfect in weakness. So what was Paul's answer? I will therefore glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The thing I want you to understand is grace. When God gives grace, he gives an ability to live a strength to do something. He does not give a license to sin. See, there is no once saved, always saved. This is a demon teaching. Millions believe it, and millions will go to hell. He gives you grace to overcome the world. The Holy Spirit comes alongside the Christian and helps them. He gives you grace in the form of strength. So you have to understand this. So he says, my grace is strength. Remember that. My grace is a strength. It's not a license. If you don't remember anything else, it might keep you out of hell to remember that. My grace, it is the power that makes you strong. If you use it, we are told to put on the whole armor. If you don't put it on, you get beat down. See, your will has a lot to do with coming to the Lord and staying with the Lord. 
Your will has nothing to do with the plan of salvation. It has to do with getting salvation and staying with the Lord. You have to exercise obedience. You have to yield. To call Jesus Lord means you exercise your will to follow him and obey him. All of the epistles is applying to the will of the person. If everything was automatic and everything was free grace and license to sin, none of these scriptures would have to be written. Okay? We would have to say that God is foolish. Why would he talk about things that aren't necessary? God does it. When God speaks, you better listen to what he says, because there's a consequence for good or evil if you do not. Okay? He helps you, his spirit, spirit of Christ in you. He helps your weakness, your natural tendencies, your temptations. He gives you power to overcome them. He doesn't give you a license of sin. He gives you the power to say no to these things. Was it say, Paul said, you're not under the law. You don't have to obey the laws of the flesh and the body. Sin shall not have dominion over you. It means it cannot rule you if you do not allow it. The false heretic says, because you're in grace, it can't rule you. Well, if you obey grace, if you get strength. See how they twist scripture? They're cunning. Millions will fall into the lake of fire and be groaning and moaning for eternity of how foolish they were. They'll get the enlightenment at judgment day. There's no one that's going to be in hell that isn't going to realize he belongs there. That's why there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not just the horror of hell and fire, but remorse and hopelessness that nothing can be done about it. That's the terrible part. Even Paul said, he said, we preach. Some interpret the scripture wrong. He says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Well, some groups feel if they don't preach the gospel, that's the terror, they'll go to hell. They don't preach to God because they're inspired and they want to. It's because they're afraid of hell. But the scripture actually means knowing the fear and terror of the Lord toward the wicked. We persuade men. We know what their end's going to be. We know the horrible place they're going to. And we offer them the gospel. We don't pound on them and keep it up. We don't have no scripture. After two or three times, the scripture says, leave people alone. It means they don't want the truth. Don't cast pearls before swine. But if a person's never heard the true gospel and you give them the opportunity, then you give it to them. It says, Paul said, flee from the wrath to come. He knew what hell was going to be like. And he said, run from it. You don't want the wrath of God upon yourselves. Okay. Now to the angel of the church and Thyatira, write this. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, say this. So we see here, the Son of God, eyes like a flame of fire. He sees all. He's searching. He knows all. That's what it means. His feet are bronze. It was a copper alloy, sometimes brass, 
in the Roman world. It was used in many things. Okay, It spoke of being stable, sound judgment. See, that's how the Lord walks. He's stable. He brings fine judgment to the world. This is what it means. It is interesting that the book of Revelation, or the prophecy, it was from the Father to the Son, by an angel, and then to John. And then John gives it to us. It went through five processes. The Lord said, if we read the first chapter of Revelation again, he is the first and the last. He is the Almighty. Usually, the term Almighty is only used of God and the Father. Well, Isaiah says he is the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's referring to Jesus. That's who he is. The Son of God, the Word of God. He is the everlasting Father. So you see the oneness with the Godhead. And so it came from the Father. To each church is addressed by the Son in some manner. One, he tells us who he is, describes himself, and what he's going to, but it's always the Son has a word there. And then each message to the churches ends by listen to the Spirit. It's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that are speaking. They're basically in unity of what they do. From what we understand, God is in three persons. He's one God. He's not nine gods or three gods like some people try to make him. He's not. Jesus was the creator of the world. All things were made by him. All things were made by the Spirit who hovered over the darkness and the earth and created things. So we see the Father, Son, or the Word, and the Spirit are in creation. So we need to understand this. Everything that is created, all the gifts and ministries to the church, you have the Father, Son, and the Spirit involved. They're not separated in their dealings, in their working. So we need to understand this. Jesus has returned to his glory. While on earth he was confined to a humanity, there were certain things he didn't know. There were certain things he couldn't do that was kept from him. And this was, again, what the temptation, the three main temptations of the 40 days of the devil, the devil was trying to get him to use his divinity against the command of God. He said, if you're the son of God, make these round stones into bread. Well, Jesus was hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. He was starting to starve. And all he had to do was speak the word. But he knew. It would be disobedience. But when he passed the test, it didn't say that Jesus then used his divinity. He didn't. It says on only a couple of times that we're told that angels came to minister him. What did they minister? They fed him. And then we don't hear much of angels from him. And then in the garden, when he prays and sweats blood, when he knows what suffering's going to come upon him, it says that an angel strengthened him. He was a man. He had to live as a man. He had to be a prophet, a teacher, and then be the Savior. But then, when he did this, when he gave up his life, he took on the power of the divine nature. He's part of the Godhead. The scripture says, as John says, and he wrote both of them, he said he's the Word of God. 
It means face to face, one with the Father. And when he returns as a king and judged in Revelation for the wicked, he's going to have the word of God written on his thigh. All judgments, the white throne even, he's going to have a part in. No judgments going to be without him judging. The Father's committed to him because he lived as a man. People aren't going to be able to say, well, you don't understand, you were God. No, he does understand. And they're not going to be excused, okay? So we see all three, as you read these messages to the church, you see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit occupied in these messages. Remember, everything Jesus said, he received from the Father. Every word. Okay? And he tells us this, and the Spirit confirms at the end and speaks. He speaks what the Son speaks. Jesus tells us the Spirit will show the things of Christ to men. He will reveal them. He's the executor, if you will, on the earth. The Father implied sits on the throne, even though he's everywhere as God, but he manifests himself in heaven by sitting on the throne. And Jesus bodily as a human and God, he stands as high priest. That's why I tell you, no one has ever, since his resurrection, seen Christ bodily. Even Paul didn't. He called it a vision. See? He's still standing. But when he comes back as a judge and a king, we will see him bodily. But all manifestations of the Spirit, he's showing us the things of the Father and of the Son. So we need to understand this. Verse 19, I know your deeds. Most translations, again, go back and forth. Works. They don't want to hear that, the heretic. Oh, works, we don't need work. Well, you better have some deeds because he knows what they are, good or bad. And he's going to give every man, we'll see one of the church. He said everyone's going to get according to their works, not according to their belief. It's your works that prove what you believe. All judgments in the Old Testament and the New Testament and that to come, all judgments are based on works. You don't hear any belief. See, it's obvious if you're a true Christian, you do believe. But works, whatever form they take, as the filthiness, unrighteousness of the Pharisee, self-righteousness, self-effort, Self-works. Think that you can do this and appease God. It's unacceptable to him. Actually, it's an abomination. Proverbs says the sacrifices of the wicked are detestable or an abomination. When wicked people try to give to God to soothe their conscience and humanitarian stuff, their motive is self. They cannot act other than self. See, they don't have Christ. And therefore, it don't count too much with God. Now, it might count with the degree of punishment in hell, but it won't get them to heaven. I can tell you, the richest person in the world is not going to get to heaven. As Jesus said, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul, what has it profited you? So, but it's good to give money, give time, give aid. A Christian is expected to do this. And the scripture in Hebrews says that God is not unjust to reward them. He rewards wickedness and he rewards righteousness. 
It's an insult to God say, oh, well, I don't care about the rewards. I just want to, well, that's an insult. God cares about it. He's just. He's holy. And he rewards. He said, you won't lose giving someone a cup of water. That meant at that time, the least you could do for him. The least that you do as a Christian for someone and for the cause of the gospel or for Christ, he said, you won't lose your reward. Everything. And he tells the wicked every idle word they speak. They're going to answer for that. See, that's justice and holiness. And he says, I won't forget it. Now, some reward we get here, it's in spiritual things. But most rewards we're going to get in heaven. God, it don't matter if he awards the person here. They still get a reward later for being righteous and doing righteous works, okay? So that's what he's talking about. So he knows what it says. I know your works, your deeds, your fruits. You can imply either one. And your love and faith and service and perseverance. And that your deeds or works of late are greater than the first. They had improved on their perseverance. They had improved on their works. They were growing in grace. They were bearing much fruit. Okay? Isn't it interesting? So I know this. When you love and when you persevere, and your works are greater now than they were. Ephesus had lost his first love. They had gone back on this. Thyatira had increased in works, and he commends their spiritual works. See, with the Ephesians, it was basically implying they don't mean too much. If you haven't loved Christ first, all your works are sort of vain. He's not interested. But it seems like Thyatira, they love the Lord properly, and he commends them for the good works they're doing. Okay? So we need to understand uh, works are important. I've heard so many people, you never hear the word works. It's all grace. That's false. Grace gives you strength for works. Grace gives you strength to bear fruit. Grace gives you strength to do what the Lord wants. And if you don't use it, it does not apply. Verse 20. Okay, now he says, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants. God calls us not only his children, but why does he call bondservants? Because we work. Remember this. If you don't work and serve, you're not a child of God. Even in heaven it says we shall serve him. He'll serve us. He'll do God's kindness for us. It says we serve him. So a bondservant, he's implying, has to have good works. Okay? People who say they don't are false, and they're teaching heresy. Okay. They teach my bondservant, she says. She leads them astray. That means away from the truth. By committing immorality and eating things sacrificed to a idols. She taught them to commit fornication, which can include adultery, and they were spiritual adulterers, idolatrous. See, they were guilty of these sins. 
So I have against you. You're lacking something. You failed. You disappointed in something. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Like the other church, he finds them at some faults, and he commends them for the good, if they have any, and he considers, he reproves them for their sin. So he considered it sin to put up with the false teacher. Here, especially this woman, Jezebel, there is not just love, as people say today, just love them, tolerate them. There is a judge not. I ride through town sometime and one of the churches says, we receive everybody. Well, the early church wouldn't if they didn't change. If they were thieves and adulterers and homosexuals and fornicators, they didn't receive them in the early church. You repented or you didn't come. You weren't a part of the fellowship. Now, the sign of so-called a Christian is tolerating everything. Just love them and don't judge them. Well, you're a coward and you're on the way to hell, especially if you're a minister. Okay, this Jezebel, some assume from history, was a powerful woman in the church, in this church area. Some believe it may have been the bishop or the overseer's wife. Remember, each of the home churches had an overseer. And then the whole area sometimes had an apostle, a prophet, oh, we called him a bishop now, that overlooked everything, okay? It was a checks and balances. So we have to see who this woman is. She calls herself a prophetess. She thinks she's speaking for God. Well, first of all, we have to understand in the early church, they did not recognize women and the fivefold ministry. Christ probably still doesn't. They could teach one another. They could share things with people and everything, but they were not to rule over men. And I believe that still applies. The churches don't. See, now some of them are practicing lesbian be a minister. Well, she's got double set against her. She's immoral and she's teaching and she has no business. Philip had five daughters who prophesied. It never said they were prophets. Everybody in gatherings and praying, all Christians at times could prophesy, but they could not be prophets. They could not rule. They did not have authority to correct men, and you have to have that authority to be in the fivefold ministry, okay? So we don't see any in the New Testament that are called apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, or teachers. You don't find that. It's very unpopular to say that because we live in a democracy. But it's the truth, and it doesn't change. You can see why Christianity becomes more unpopular. We now have 25% of the Senate of the United States as women. Isn't that interesting? What did God say in the old? And I say, it's a shame when women rule over you, and children are your oppressors. They rule their parents. That's what it means. So it may be democracy. God still doesn't like it, okay? You can excuse it all you want, but God. Some denominations were started by women, and they have more women than men. Doesn't mean. See, they wrangle and with Paul, and they twist this. Well, the women used to sit here and there, and they have all these excuses. But there's one scripture alone after Paul gives this. 
He said, let the people know. He's just said he don't allow women to do this. These are the commandments of the Lord. If you think you're a spiritual or a prophet, he said, these are the commandments of the Lord. He didn't say this was his opinion. Okay? You have a hard time getting around that scripture if you're going to try to do it. You have to deceive yourself. So she calls herself a prophetess. That was bad enough. Some believe she overruled her husband and taught false teaching. Or maybe he was in on it. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray. Being called herself a prophet and teaching a leading men, like I said, the early church never allowed them, a woman, to lead men. Never allowed them in that office. Because you would have to rebuke correct men in the process. And you might at times have to turn people over to the devil for punishment. You might have to order people put out of the church. Didn't allow women to do this, okay? She, like the Nicolonians, taught a lie to sin. And your moral character did not have to be righteous. She refuted. She said they could mingle with false cults. She could eat whatever they sacrificed. And they could be immoral. Can you imagine? We think it's bad today. Look at 21. I gave her time to repent. Didn't say years. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. She's living in immorality herself. And she's teaching others they can live that. That means that she was an adulteress. She either had a husband or she was sleeping with someone else's husband. That's what immorality is, the fornication. That root word fornication includes adultery, bestiality, homosexuality. It includes many sexual sins. You have to understand that. It's just not a link to one sin. So he gave her time to repent, but she does not want to. Remember this. Under the law, did you know if you worshipped idols, you were dragged away and stoned to death. You weren't even given an opportunity to repent. Yet Christ desires all to repent of their evil. She was once a Christian or she was false and got into the church. But to repent implies she once knew the Lord. Repent means come back to, turn direction. Uh, so he warns her to do this of her wicked life. So God waits. In some cases, with the regular sinner and the person that turns away, God doesn't immediately judge them in this world. A lot of times he waits till judgment day. But sometimes the higher up the false prophet is, the false teacher, or if they were once really sound, he gives them opportunity. God in the old often gave many backsliders opportunity, even Israel. He tells that backslider to come back to the Lord. So most have not blasphemed the Holy Ghost, as Hebrews implies. The Spirit hasn't departed permanently from them. It means it's dealing with them. doesn't mean they're still Christians. He said that even the Jew who were cut off for rebellion and the Gentile church was grafted in, he implied that they could be grafted back in if they repented. So we see blasphemy of the Holy Ghost appears to be a rare sin. 
but under the old and new. In most cases, God tells them to come back. He warns them. He receives them if they repent properly and confess their sin and take their punishment. Sometimes they have to take their punishment. So we see this. We don't see many of them come back, the false teachers. I haven't. They're tested and deceitful, okay? We need to understand why does not God remove them quickly for the benefit of the baby Christian so she doesn't lead others astray? We would think that Christ would deal with her instantly. But there's a reason for this. See, she's teaching false teaching, okay? So the young Christian, the babe, the novice, that has no root, that does not apply himself constantly to the word and to Christ and take the warnings of scripture to mature. He won't mature. They are led astray. In a way, this is God's way. This is what he wants. It's a testing period. They play with sin and it deceives them. So we need to understand. So they are allowed railings and factions and heresies in their presence and they fall away. Okay, you will see who is faithful and who stands with Christ and his word by the reaction to these people, these young Christians. First Corinthians, people have such a false concept of God. He's not Santa Claus. He's not their mom and dad that spoils them. Hebrews says he has, if he doesn't punish you for your sins as a Christian, then you're a bastard. You're illegitimate. You're not his. It makes it very plain. Okay. First Corinthians 11.19 For there must be heresies among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Isn't that interesting? God allows them to come in and he allows them to teach false. He wants the Christian to spot it. He commends some of these churches because they didn't tolerate it. Even Ephesus, once John was put in prison and gone, he was the apostle of the whole area. He says, some have come and said they're apostles, and you've tested them and proven they're liars. He commended Ephesus for doing that. So even the best of the churches had the faults come in at times. They had the wolves in sheep's clothing. They had people come. Well, this happened to Israel. When they crossed the sea and left Egypt under the plague, it says a multitude of Egyptians went with them. And these were the ones that later helped turn them and tempt them away from God. They went with them, but they didn't become a Jew in their heart. So God allowed them. It cost them the whole nation could not go into the promised land. And they had to wander for 40 years. Who was behind that? Many of the Egyptians that decided to go with them. Isn't that interesting? Mingling with the world will get you in hell. I've known a few. I've talked to them. Sound Christian. I remember several years ago, I saw him after 10 or 15 years. Him and his wife got a divorce and they were supposed to be both Christians, but I don't know the situation. He was once a godly man. I think he was godly then. He had remarried. And he wanted to talk to me. I was saw him in the store. And he said, but I, I can't talk to you now. You know, I remarried. I said, no, I don't know. Not that I live in Hawaii. 
and she's dying of cancer. She's not going to live long. And before I realized what I said, I said, well, we all pay the fiddler. He married an unbeliever. God may have saved her. There's still no credit to him. They People that do that, and if that companion does come to the Lord, God still holds them responsible for disobeying him. So you don't excuse or justify their sinning. And he said she only had about a year to live. And that was a long time ago. That was at least 15 or more, more years. And he's in his 70s now. But I have never seen it. Usually, if you marry an unbeliever or a fleshly, a person that's not sound, and you're not sound, I mean, if you're not sound, it's different. Two babes, I guess, can marry. That's the danger. It's easier for them to pull you down than for you to pull them up. There's always consequences from the Lord. Okay? So he gave them time her to repent. We will stop here. We will stop at verse 21, and we will continue next week. Lord, give us wisdom and application. Make the word of God plain. As you said, you'll make it plain to the righteous, but the wicked will never understand. The false teacher and the heretic and the backslider many times are given over to evil spirits. Guard our minds and our ears that we be not deceived. In Jesus' name, amen.